I really have to apologize to uh, Paula and our office staff because earlier in the week when they asked me what chapter are we going to be in this Sunday, I said Genesis 44. Not intentionally trying to lie to them, 45. Oh yeah, well I doubly lied. Um, but here was my thinking going into uh, the narrative of the life of Joseph. What happens in Genesis 42 and again in Genesis 43, and at the beginning of Genesis 44, is that Joseph comes in contact for the first time in decades with his brothers. And uh, through the providence of God, begins to test his brothers in order to determine what kind of men they are now. Now, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Uh, my thinking was, what I'm going to do is, I'm going to summarize these confrontations, and we're going to go, or summarize these tests, right? And we're going to go straight to confrontation, right? This is the plan. We're going to cover 44, straight into the beginning of 45. Here's the confrontation. Here's what we've been. And, I, you know, I, honestly, I think uh, under the spirit of God and the direction uh, they're studying uh, his word, I found that, that was almost an impossible task. Let's just summarize about 150 verses of scripture and then try to move on. So, uh, I started going back and looking at Genesis 42, which would naturally be the next passage that we would study, and uh, pulled one of my favorite Genesis commentaries off the shelf, and the commentator said something along these lines, which is, it is widely acknowledged, even in unbelieving circles, that the story of Genesis 42 through 45 is one of the most beautiful in all of human literature, and should not be uh, ran roughshod as we try to get to the conclusion of the story of restoration between Joseph and his brothers. Point taken. So, Genesis 42. Genesis 42. What's important here at the very beginning of Genesis 42 is that we remember the calamity in which the entire context of the story had been set. I was watching a video a couple of years ago, just happened to pop up on my feed, and it was a rather wealthy couple in England, and they had uh, an incredibly luxurious sailing boat that cost them millions of dollars, and in a moment of negligence, they had run up on the rocks. They had uh, then been uh, forced to uh, get on the lifeboat and evacuate the ship uh, as the ship was now uh, gurgling into the sea. And the couple is standing on the shore, and they're watching very slowly as their boat is descending into the depths, and they're being interviewed by the camera person. And he holds the microphone up to the husband and says, uh, please, sir, at this moment, could you tell me exactly what you're thinking and feeling? And he says, how disastrous this moment is because all of these years we worked in order to afford this luxury, and now, because of my own ignorance and negligence, it's descending into the ocean. And, uh, ma'am, please share your thoughts as well. And she goes, well, I told him to take the boat into the dock because of all of these barnacles and things that are on the bottom of the boat. And sure enough, as the boat had descended its uh, back into the sea first, it had lifted the front, and you could see below the waterline all of the barnacles and crustaceans and all the rest. I told him to take it in and to get the boat serviced and have all of that cleaned off and to have it painted again. And now here we are in front of all of our friends, and our boat looks so dirty. And the man holding the microphone looks at the husband, and the husband is doing this. Clearly... This isn't the problem. The problem that the boat is dirty, that its hole hasn't been scraped of all of the barnacles, that it hasn't had a new coat of paint, that's not what we're talking about right now. What we're talking about is that millions of dollars are now descending into the ocean, and it's all our fault, and there's no way we're going to get it back again. And That's clearly the story. That's clearly the problem. 
it would be easy marching into Genesis chapter 42 to misidentify the problem. We might think that this is a story about famine. We saw just recently Joseph interpret a couple of dreams for Pharaoh himself where there was promised seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And Joseph, working at the providence of God, suggests to Pharaoh that for those seven plentiful years they store away grain so that not only the nation of Egypt but all the surrounding nations might have enough to sustain them in the seven years of drought. You might think that that's the problem. You might also think that the problem is that Joseph who has languished for so many years, now finds his crisis averted as he's drawn out of the pit, and now he's elevated to a position of influence and authority in the nation of Israel, that the problem is essentially that Joseph has been wronged, and now God is righting those wrongs. But that's not really the problem either. These are barnacles on the boat. The problem starts back in Genesis 37, when we're first introduced to Joseph. And in many ways, this isn't even a story of Joseph at all. It's a story about Jacob. Jacob has a son, at that time his youngest, his beloved in his marriage with Rachel, a young boy named Joseph, 17 years old. And he dotes on the boy so thoroughly, and he's so, he lacks absolutely any remote scant of nuance at all in showing favor to this young boy. This is his favorite. This is the apple of his eye. It infuriates all of Joseph's other brothers. And they hate him. And they beat him and they sell him. And by all of their own estimations, Joseph has been taken away into slavery in Egypt and he's probably dead. That's the problem. The problem is the nation of Israel, which right now is no more than Jacob and all of his sons and their families, is in no way prepared in their hearts and in their minds to fulfill the calling that God gave just a couple of generations earlier through Abraham. You remember he said, I'm going to make a great nation of you, Abraham, and all of your sons. I'm going to bless you and bless those who bless you, and I'm going to use you to be a blessing to the entirety of the earth. But Jacob's sons are going to have to be in shape, in spiritual shape, in order to do that. But the only thing we know about them to this point is that they're violent, they're malicious, they're jealous, they're disobedient, they're evil. And so here is God working through Joseph providentially to reach all the sons of Jacob, to prepare them in heart and mind to fulfill Abraham's blessed calling way back in Genesis chapter 12. We will use you to establish a nation and we'll use that nation to bless the earth. How do we get them ready? Well, it starts here in Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read through it and we'll make some observations as we go along. The first section here is the first five verses, Joseph's brothers go down to Egypt. So in those first five verses, we find this in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? You get here the rhetorical question. Why are you all just standing around staring at each other? Why aren't you doing something? Verse 2, and he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live. 
and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel, and if you want to make a little notation there, we're not just talking about Jacob's sons. We're really identifying here the future progeny that will lead the nation of God, the sons of Israel. How many thousands of millions would identify by that moniker through the generations that would follow? Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. You remember Joseph's dreams in Genesis chapter 37, the basis of the hatred that all of his brothers felt for him, that there would come a time in crisis and in peril his brothers would be bowing down before him. God has now set that plan into motion. The dream of the cupbearer and the dream of the baker and the dreams of Pharaoh have all been realized. It's only the dreams of Joseph himself that we haven't seen much actual direct traction on since Genesis 37. Well, now here in Genesis 42, nearly 20 years later, we're beginning to see the fruition and the fulfillment of those dreams. The brothers are going to be meeting each other again. We'll see what happens. We also learn something interesting in those first few verses that the uh, youngest son, one that uh, Joseph may never have met, is Benjamin. And since Joseph's alleged demise, this other son, young Benjamin, Joseph's only other brother from Rachel, has been born and has taken his place as his father's favorite. Jacob is fragile and a little fickle and plays favorites like he hasn't learned his lesson already. So when it takes the brothers to go down and to acquire enough food, not only for Jacob and the sons, but all of their wives and all of their children, we find at least Reuben has children himself by this point. Presumably the other brothers do as well. It's going to take a whole host of them and a whole bunch of pack animals to make the weeks-long journey down to Egypt, buy all the grain that they can carry and to bring it back. It won't be enough to sustain them for all seven years, but it will be enough to sustain them for a while. And maybe in that time they can develop a healthy enough relationship with whoever is doing the selling in Egypt so that they can sustain themselves in prosperity. But he won't send Benjamin, my youngest son. You remember how scarred Jacob was when he thought he had lost Joseph? He thought he might die. And so now he sends his, his ten boys, who uh, he's parted with years before. We know this just to do all of the agrarian work they do, to do the farming, to do the husbandry, to do all of that. He, he's been comfortable sending them away, but he won't send Benjamin away can't do it. His heart is too nearly broken. Well, starting in verse 6, we find the second section in this uh, particular chapter. Uh, Joseph is used by God to test his brothers. See how this plays out. Now, Joseph was governor over the land, and a great ancient Near Eastern word here, maybe a little better word than governor, is vizier. He is the grand vizier over the land of Egypt. He is the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with all of their faces to the ground. We have almost fulfilled in that moment what would happen in Genesis 37, right? Not fully, because you remember in the original dreams that Joseph is given, not only do his brothers bow down, all of them, but also his father and his mother. Uh, 
the way that he has been set up as a ruler over the family of Jacob uh, hasn't totally come to fruition yet, but it's coming. It's coming. First time in a long time we've seen traction on that prophecy. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Go ahead and do this. Uh, when we find a word that's repeated over and over again, it often reveals a literary priority of the author. Just count the number of times that the words recognize, unrecognize, remember, how often those come up. Recognize and remember is used something like 25 times in two chapters. There's an awful lot of subterfuge that's being played out here. There's an accusation that his brothers are spies, but it's really Joseph who's doing a lot of the spying. Where do you come from, he said. And they said, from the land of Canaan. Of course, he knew that. We're here to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, already beginning the subterfuge here, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. That's not really so hard to believe, right? The sons of Abraham would find themselves in just a couple of generations on the border of a foreign land as spies on the verge of conquest. If you're the only nation who has a Pharaoh who has had dreams, and you're the only nation who has had a Joseph sent to them to interpret those dreams, and if you're the only nation that by God's providence has had somebody come in and say, hey, here's a great plan. We're going to have seven years of plenty. Let's store some of this away. Then you're sitting on the most valuable substance in the entirety of the ancient Near Eastern world. None of the gold and silver and precious jewels in Pharaoh's palace is as valuable as what Joseph controls here for the known world, right? He has food, and in a famine, that is more precious than gold, and he is running the show. So you can understand his tension here. I think some of it is disingenuous. He knows who they are. He knows why they're here. He knows that there's not a whole army of a nation behind them. He knows that this is just one somewhat large family in Canaan. He knows exactly who they are, and he knows why they've come. But he's giving them something of a hard time already. So while the premise is believable that somebody could send spies into the land, it is not probably believable in Joseph's actual heart and mind that his brothers have come here to somehow overthrow the nation of Egypt. But he's putting their teeth on edge. He's holding their feet to the fire. And here's where the test really begins in earnest. They say in verse 10, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Talk about loaded words right there. Truer than they know, we are all sons of one man. That includes Joseph as, as well, whether they knew that or not. We are honest men, they say. Well, we're going to find out pretty quickly whether or not that's true. Joseph is going to work arduously over the next few weeks to determine what kind of men his brothers really are. He's the one who's going to act as God's agent to determine if they are the same miserable, crusty, jealous, wicked people that they were years earlier, or if convicted by their sin and concerned with living in a way that pleases their holy God, they have changed into new men. We're going to find that out pretty quickly. 
We are honest men. We'll see about that, parenthetically. Your servants have never been spies. Wow. Verse 12. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, are, your servants, are 12 brothers. And pause at that moment. He goes, Wait, how many? How many brothers? Maybe uh, he knew of the original 11, and he's one of them, and he's counting in the room. Uh, uh, oh, I only see 10 of you. What's going on? Uh, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father. Who's that? Benjamin, right? Daddy's favorite hasn't been allowed to leave. He's locked at home, safe and secure with his dad. And one, one is no more. Who are they talking about there? They're clearly talking about Joseph. They say they're honest men. They think they're telling the truth, but this is, in fact, the first lies that they tell in Egypt. They say that Joseph is no more. Joseph is obviously right in front of them. They just don't have the capacity to see. Joseph learns something new himself. There's a new favorite child. And for the first time in nearly 20 years, Joseph is confronted with the most painful experience of his life. It wasn't prison. It wasn't being unfairly accused by Potiphar's wife. It wasn't being forgotten by the cupbearer and the baker. It was that the people who should have loved him the most abused him incredulously and then just assumed that he was dead. No one was looking for him. There was no plan of seeking out Joseph and apologizing to him of pleading for forgiveness, of asking for restoration. There was no trajectory of redemption. In their minds, Joseph, he's dead. They don't even name his name. The one is no more. Well, the one is. The one is right there in front of them. Joseph says, the one in verse 14 it is, as I said to you, you are spies, and by this you shall be tested. Of course, there's a lot of testing going on here, more than they even know. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. We understand the problem right away. You've told me that you are one of 12 brothers. I need to see this other brother to find out if you are honest men. No father would have sent all of his brothers together, right? Uh, many of you have seen Saving Private Ryan. You know that's a story uh, loosely based on a true story from World War II where there were five brothers from Iowa who were sent to war. Four were killed, and the War Department found out and sent a team out to find the one remaining brother to bring him home. They wouldn't ask any parent to give up all of their children in the war. Similarly, no father would be dumb enough to send all of his children to Egypt in this incredibly dangerous task but that would prove that you're not spies. So, so go ahead and bring me this other brother. Let's see if you actually have another brother, that you're, that you're telling me the truth, and if you're able to produce him as evidence, well, then I'll know that you're honest people and that you're not here trying to sneak in on the cause of some foreign power to steal everything that we've accrued over the last seven years. So none of you are going to go from this place until your youngest brother comes. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested where there is truth in them. 
or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. Here the test begins. A test to determine whether or not his brothers are new men, ready for repentance and ready for reconciliation and ready for the future that they have been granted in God's providence for the future of Israel. And here we start in verse 18, I think the story of the redemption of the sons of Jacob. And in fact, in my notes, and I don't give these out every week, but you'll see that there's a little title here in your notes. This is Redemption Part 1. We'll see this story of redemption play out for the next month or so. On the third day, Joseph begins to change his mind. He says, uh, do this and you will live, for I fear God. Joseph appeals to them on a theological basis. Now here's the number two guy in Egypt. Think about the courage of Joseph in this moment. The number two guy in the entirety of the land of Egypt who is ridden on chariots, given to him by Pharaoh himself, but he hasn't embraced the pagan pantheon of all the gods in Egypt. He's not claiming that he fears Ra. He's not claiming that he fears Iris. Isis, I can't remember all of their names, but I'm sure you've seen the mummy. You know exactly what I'm talking about. He's not afraid of any of them. Who does he fear? The God of Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. He fears that God. But he makes it a theological point. Your honesty is directly tied to your character, and your character is tied to who you worship. If you are honest men, verse 19, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. There's mercy in that, right? If I only send one brother, maybe your families at home will die. But if I allow nine of the ten of you to go in mercy... They'll be able to carry enough food home to your families in Canaan to sustain you, to keep them alive. But I'm going to keep one brother here as collateral so that you can prove to me that you're honest men. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And, and they did so. Joseph has changed the deal. He's going to keep Simeon. We know that's the brother that he chooses. What will be their response to his mercy? How will they respond? Verse 21, they then said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen, and that's why this distress has come upon us. Without knowing that they've been interacting with Joseph, their hearts have been pricked by Joseph's plea that he's the one who fears God. He has said that this is a theological situation, and they agree we are about to have to go home and confront our father and say that we've lost another one of his sons. Why? It's not random circumstance. They say we know that God is involved. Do you remember all those years ago the horrible thing that we did to our youngest brother in our jealousy and in our hatred? It's been a very long time but all those chickens are coming home to roost. They understand that God is directly involved here. They have a God problem. They have a heart problem. And Reuben answered them, and I love Reuben here, who's kind of falsely courageous. Uh, he had stood up. You remember when uh, Joseph was uh, about to be murdered by his brothers, and he said, well, let's not murder him. Let's just throw him in that hole in the ground and sell him into slavery, because that's way better. Right? 
And Reuben answered, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? I mean, not that sin. Maybe some other sins are okay, but, but not that. But you didn't listen. The oldest brother, how insufferable. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them. Apparently they were speaking Hebrew to each other. For there was an interpreter between them, how clever Joseph is. And then he turned away from them and and he wept. It's not the first, or excuse me, it's not the last time that Joseph will weep here in front of his brothers in this scene of reconciliation, but it is the first. His heart is broken. He knows now that they remember. He knows now all of their pain, N not just in thinking about what has happened to him, but in what's happened to them. And he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave the orders to fill their bags with grain and, and cleverly here, to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. They know. They know what they've done. They're terrified of Joseph who they don't recognize. They're terrified of starvation, of disappointing their father, of not providing for their families. And truly and sincerely, they're terrified of the wrath of God for their ancient sin. And Joseph knows. What's his response? He weeps. It's both inward and outward. He weeps because he's forced to remember his painful past. And he weeps because his brothers have never been able to forget it. There is mercy in his weeping. But he's also set out a very sly test. He's going to determine what kind of men his brothers really are. Verse 26, Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain, and they departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that... And who do they account as being in charge of this whole scenario? God. God is working in this. They see God at every corner now. They didn't see him years ago when they sent Joseph into slavery, but now they can't help but see God in every turn of every direction of every event that's occurring in their sojourn down to Egypt. What is this thing that God has done to us? Joseph is sneaky here. Okay, give me your money, and I'll give you the grain, and I'm going to send nine of the ten of you back. You're going to go get your brother. I'm going to hold Simeon here as collateral. But then he instructs his servants, hey, when you fill the sacks of grain, what I want you to do is go ahead and take the money that they paid us and go ahead and put it back in the sack. And, and as they are traveling back and they discover that their money is still there, they're absolutely terrified because the implication is if anyone found them on the road, if any customs agent were to stop them at the border and go, hey, how come all of your money is still in the bag? Did you steal this grain and keep the money and now you're trying to escape? When you steal the most valuable commodity in the world, when you steal food from a people on the verge of starvation, that's a capital crime. If anyone stops and asks them what they're doing, they may as well be dead men. And if they have any hope of going back to Egypt, only able to carry food for maybe a couple of weeks at the most. They're going to have to return. 
return to the warehouses of Egypt and return to Joseph and all of his authority. They're going to have to explain why in the books at the end of the day that they arrived and that they departed, that there was not enough money accounted for for the amount of grain that they had taken back to Canaan. It's bleak at every turn. But it's also a really clever device for determining the kinds of men that Joseph's brothers are. You remember years earlier, they didn't give Joseph away, they sold him. We're never told exactly how much Joseph's life was worth. But now Simeon has been king. How much is Simeon's life worth? Are his brothers the kind of men who will take the grain and the money and run away and never come back? And just leave their brother there on layaway forever? Is it possible that they're willing to forfeit another brother for what amounts to maybe a not a whole lot of money? They did it before. Will they do it again? Will they even think twice about it? Verse 29. When they get back to Jacob, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, the man, the, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, we, we are honest men and we've never been spies. We are 12 brothers, sons of our father, one who is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, by this I shall know you are honest men. Leave with one of your brothers... Uh, or excuse me, leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine to your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me and then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. But as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack and, and when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. He's the first one in the family to name the one who is no more. He speaks his name aloud. You wonder if every passing day over the last two decades he hasn't spoken Joseph's name out loud. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin? All this has come against me. I keep giving you money, you take it to Vegas, you lose it all, and now you're asking for more? The most precious thing I have is this young boy. You are fools if you think you're taking him away from me. Well, then Reuben, and I can't tell you if Reuben is a good guy or not. He absolutely befuddles me. Is he just a toothless lion here barking before his brothers, or does he actually mean what he says? Verse 37 says to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Well, you, you didn't do that so many years before, but maybe you'll do it now. Maybe this is an indication of the change in your heart. But he said, this is Jacob responding, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is the only one left. How hurtful did that have to feel to the other sons? This is the only one left. Have we not traveled in danger to provide food for the family? Aren't we important to you? If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring my gray hairs, 
down to sorrow to Sheol. I nearly died when I lost Joseph. If I lose Benjamin, it'll take me the rest of the way there. I'm done. Can't lose another thing. The altar leaves you in a tense place. There's no resolution here at the end of chapter 42. Are they going to go back to Egypt? Will they bring Benjamin with them? Will Jacob allow all of this to happen to preserve the family? We don't know. But we do learn a couple of really important things from Genesis 42 that gets us ready for everything that's to follow. If I were going to give you a big idea this morning, it would be something like this. God's providence uses God's agents to achieve God's plan. God's providence uses God's agents to achieve God's plan. Now, we should qualify here. And the first thing that we learn is that God's providence is sometimes painful. Think about what he's done to Joseph here. If the problem is foundationally that the nation of Israel, the one who would lead them into the future, this great, mighty nation of the sons of Abraham, if the ones who would lead them there, that is the sons of Jacob, are so decrepit in their hearts and minds, are so defunct in holiness, are so unprepared to lead as holy men that God has to go in and cut out all of the black and darkness from their hearts and reconcile them to him. They understand, just as he understands, it's a theological problem. The problem isn't primarily with Joseph. The problem isn't primarily with Jacob. The problem is primarily with God. They've disappointed him. They've disobeyed him. They've displeased him. How could they possibly be the kind of people that God said they would be, both to Abraham and the world, if they're the kind of people who can't even be reconciled to their own brother who in maliciousness they sold into slavery? So what does God do to fix that problem? He does all kinds of things to Joseph, doesn't he? God allows Joseph to be hated, sold, enslaved, unjustly accused, imprisoned, and forgotten. But look at the fruit that will come out of that. He's elevated. Egypt will be spared. Thousands upon thousands will survive the drought, including his own family. thus preserving the future of the nation of Israel. God's providence is painful for so many of those affiliated with the work that he's doing, but it's ultimately good for Joseph, good for Jacob, good for Israel, good for Egypt, good for the world. Uh, one of my children, and I won't tell you which one, but if you look over there, their eyes will get real big, they tell you. Uh, was about three or four years old and got a splinter in the tip of her index finger. And I have never been so concerned in all my life that somebody was going to call CPS on us as I was when we tried to get the splinter out of her hand. Because we were sitting in a chair by the front window of the house, and I had a pair of tweezers, and the thing was just barely dislodged from her skin, easy enough for us to grab. But she screamed like someone was beating her. And so you would think this little tiny person who weighs, I don't know, like 40 pounds soaking wet, I'm sitting in the chair, and, and, and she's sitting on my lap, and I have my legs wrapped around her legs, and my arms wrapped around her arms, and I've got pinched in my hand, her pointer fingers stuck out there, and she's screaming, I mean, absolutely, like someone is just killing her, right? 
and, and, and she is doing, and she's surprisingly strong, right? You hear about like moms who lift cars off of kids after an accident, right? And th- this is the same energy that this four-year-old has trying to keep her index finger away from the tweezers. And she's fidgeting like this, and here's Laura with the tweezers, and finally we get the thing, and she yanks it out, it hurts not at all. And all of the tears subside. And all of the pain and anguish in her face instantaneously gone. And the words were, well, that's not that bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> we told you it wasn't that bad. <sighs> Joseph, we're going to do this thing. We're going to do this thing in your life. And I don't mean to diminish the very awful thing that has absolutely been wrought through many, many years in Joseph's life. But I can't tell you about the fruit that's on the other side. You're going to know heights of honor and obedience that you have never known before. I am preparing you for something so much better. And you won't even believe the work that I'm doing in and through you to bless the people around you. Is it possible that in the midst of your trials, when things seem absolutely bleak, when you are pushed to your absolute limit, and you find yourself entirely dependent on God, your Savior, that maybe he is doing something extraordinary in your life, not only to bring about something good for you, but maybe to bring about something good for those around you, and ultimately to glorify himself. In my experience, I've seen hardly anyone grow spiritually grow, take great leaps forward when things are going really, really well. Joseph is a sterling example that our character is determined in the fire. And a real sign of Christian maturity is acknowledging that when things are maybe, as we perceive, at their very worst, God is most directly doing his very best to bring about honorable and better things for us that will make his name great to the world. Secondly, God's painful providence uses God's agents to achieve God's plan of reconciliation. Who is God's agent here in Genesis 42? It's Joseph. Joseph. God rarely works in a vacuum of human service. In his mercy, he chooses servants to do his glorifying work. And here he's picked Joseph. And Joseph is two things. He's both able and willing to do God's work. He's able. He hasn't disqualified himself. Now, imagine if Joseph, having been sold into slavery in Egypt, having worked his way up in Potiphar's house, then having been falsely accused of hurting Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison, what if he had just given up? Right? What if he just said, that's it, I'm done. I've tried resiliency, I've tried obedience, I've tried holiness, and what has God ever done for me? I'm done. And he just indulged every wicked whim in his heart. He would never have gotten out of prison. It's unlikely he would have ever seen the light of day. He, He would have been a prisoner in perpetuity at least until his death. But he's ready. He's ready in holiness. He's ready in obedience. He's ready to do the next thing. Beaten, but not down. 
frustrated, but he hasn't given up. Compelled at every corner to choose his own agenda, but he hasn't stopped proactively working as a servant of the holy God of Israel. He just keeps going. The fact that he just keeps going is maybe one of the greatest lessons we can learn from Joseph's life. But not only is he able to serve, he's willing. (laughs) This is maybe the most staggering thing in all of Genesis chapter 42. The ones who should have loved him most show up after all these years. And he finally has his chance for revenge. No, you're spies. Guards, kick him out. Let him starve in the desert of Canaan. And while he sits at his table, surrounded by all the plenty that's been divinely wrought for him over the last seven years, his brothers could have marched back with the ominous news that all of them would starve to death. And Joseph could have reveled in the irony that now the one who is sold into slavery is free to eat all that he would And the ones who had a little bit of money at selling him have not nearly enough to purchase a future for themselves in Egypt. But God has already done a work in Joseph's heart. Joseph is an agent for God to glorify him and to bring about reconciliation in the lives of his brothers. Not only reconciling them to him, but helping by showing them obedience and holiness to reconcile them to God. That is their ultimate problem. Finally, we find that the plan is one of reconciliation. Remember at the beginning when we laid out that the real problem, the real problem was that they had done an awful sinful thing and that the one that they had most violated wasn't Joseph but God himself. These men are estranged from their brother but they're even more egregiously estranged from God and until their hearts are broken, until they repent of their sin and until they embrace through holy obedience God's plan for their lives, they'll never fulfill their calling. In our day, may God send us people like Joseph, who because of the mercy that God has wrought in their hearts, is able to confront the evangelical church with our sin, with our disobedience, to awaken us to what we have been called to do, to make the name of God great over all the earth so that we might be a blessing and so that we might be, in the truest and fullest way, pleasing to our God. There's much to come. We've left on something of a cliffhanger. I would encourage you before next week to read Genesis 43. We're not done with Joseph. I had this conversation with Jason this morning. If we understand this to be a story not only of Joseph but of Jacob, it's something like half the book of Genesis. They get more verbiage than Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Isaac nearly all together. It is the great grand story of redemption modeled for us here in the late chapters of Genesis. And it's impossible not to think of the extraordinary lengths to which God would go to reconcile this brother to his family and to reconcile the family to him without thinking of the work that God would do through his son, Jesus Christ. 
Jacob is unwilling to send Benjamin at the prospect of aiding their family. God is willing to send his son to pay whatever price, to take whatever fate, however painful and dishonorable, to save us wretches. It's an extraordinary contrast in the kinds of fathers that we have here on earth versus our Father in heaven. We'll see that play out more clearly next week. We'll actually see that also on Wednesday night. If you've been joining us for our four-week-long study in John Piper's Spectacular Sins, the chapter that we'll discuss this week, chapter 6, is all about Joseph. How is God doing an extraordinary thing a la Romans 8, 28, through what's happening in Joseph's life? Let's pray. Father, help us in all that you do and in all that you reveal about yourself through your holy word to see you, to reckon with you, your character, your might, your mercy, your grace, and your love, and your undefiled holiness. Help us to worship in light of that. Help us to live in light of you. In Jesus' name I pray.